Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their on-screen adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Station Eleven. Station Eleven was written by Emily St. John Mendel and published in 2014. And the uh, HBO series adaptation, uh, which was released at the very tail end of 2021, just wrapped up, uh, was showrun by Patrick Somerville. Yes, and we are talking about a book that is actually very near and dear to mine and Ian's hearts. Yes, uh, I think I bought it first, right? I can't remember. I, I bought a copy of it first because it seemed interesting. We both read it yeah. uh, quite a while ago around the time it first came out. Pre-podcast, Ian and Adina. Pre-podcast. Uh, and we actually got the chance to see Emily St. John Mandel speak yeah. in Pittsburgh about writing this book. Yeah, it's really cool. There's you know uh, a series that happens in Pittsburgh where they have authors come and speak. Um, and we had the chance to see her. We brought the book with us. We waited in line and she signed a copy for us. We just posted it on our Instagram, actually, uh, the picture of the signed copy and what she wrote to us. Um, so kind of a little bit of a cool connection there. Yeah. I really wish I remembered more of, of what, what she talked what about. She said. <laughs> I know it's so long ago because I think it was in 2015 or yes. 2016 it was six that years she went ago on the tour because so. actually I still had the receipt from our tickets <laughs> or the proof of our tickets tucked in the book because we took the book with us to the show to get it signed and the receipt was still in the book so yeah it was six years ago wow and uh yeah I remember her talking about like in her research finding out the gasoline expires yes which I thought was interesting I mean the book talks about that mm-hmm. uh but yeah I really wish I if I'd known six years ago I'd be doing a podcast episode <laughs> we would have taken notes yes I would have brought a notebook <laughs> with me yeah so it was really exciting when we heard that there's going to be an HBO um series adaptation for this and the timing of course is very interesting Ian because <laughs> station station 11 is is a story about a pandemic, uh, not a regular pandemic. We're in a regular pandemic yeah, right now. Pandemic like, light. Yeah, pandemic light. This is like hardcore where 99% of the Earth's population is decimated by a flu. Yes. And uh, the production actually got halted. It began, yeah. I think, at the start of 2020 and then mm-hmm. got halted because of uh, COVID. I and read that they recorded the first two episodes. Yeah, I think I read like one fifth roughly yeah. of the series. Before they got shut down. Was filmed. <laughs> yeah. So that's all interesting. This is a an adaptation that I feel like I've been reading about for years now it being like in some form of development and like I genuinely didn't think it was ever going to happen I know until it finally came out it finally came out and COVID tried to stop it but even COVID couldn't stop this (laughs) pandemic movie or pandemic show and I know a lot of people that I've talked to about it just in my own circle have kind of said like oh I don't know if I want to watch that because it's a little too much Mm -hmm. to watch a show about a devastating pandemic while we're in the middle of a very devastating pandemic. You know, it's very different from what's in the book and in the show, but it is, it does make you think a lot about what's going on now and like civilization and how fragile it is. Absolutely. I think it's interesting because like, you know, reading this six years ago, it was probably like, wow, what a far, far out concept. Yeah. And now it's like, it's still obviously a much more extreme situation, but you're a little bit more like, 
Yeah. Like people being like, oh, I can't wait for things to get back to normal like in this story. And I'm like, too close. Yeah. Too close to home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's, um, let's get into the episode a little bit. Let's talk about how the book and the show start. I think the start of this book and and show is so good. Yeah. Like, it just stuck in my mind. Like, I I forgot a lot about this story. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, actually, I remembered quite a bit of it, actually, compared to my usual amount of retention. <laughs> um, but the beginning of the story is so specific and unique and interesting. Yeah. It starts off uh, right before the pandemic has really begins at a stage production of King Lear, mm-hmm. where the uh, star who's playing Lear has a heart attack on stage. Yeah. And a member of the audience, a character named Jeevan, who in the book is training to become a paramedic, notices mm-hmm. that something's wrong, like his lines are wrong, the way he's, like, acting. So he runs up on stage and begins to try to, like, save his life. Yeah, I love the chaos of this scene, and especially the fact that, like, Jeevan notices before anyone else that something is wrong. Yeah. And in fact, the ushers of the play are trying to stop him from getting to the stage because <laughs> yeah. they think he's just trying to, like, storm the space. Like a like, crazy stage. person. Yeah, but really he's trying to save our Arthur Leander, the man who is playing King Lear, trying to save his life. And I love that this story begins with a production of Shakespeare because Shakespeare is so important to this yeah. story. Um, and it is very Shakespearean, I think, to die in the middle of a show. I don't know what it is about it. Well, isn't King Lear supposed to be like a cursed play? Yeah. Where like people don't <laughs> want to do it because it's like, I don't just curse, like bad things happen. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, just the fact that like this character Arthur dies on stage unrelated to the pandemic that's about to hit. Yeah. And kind of every main character branches off of him Mm -hmm. like everyone has some kind of connection or tie-in to arthur to arthur and i find that like really interesting considering he dies immediately yeah but we revisit him though and we go back in time in the past to see his life and everything but i do find like what you said about him dying right before everyone else died yes and almost it being like more significant because he beat everybody to the punch (laughs) you know what i mean he was dying before it was cool well and it's a particularly weird feeling too like you know i don't want to get too personal but you know my father passed away last year and during you know the height of covid but he didn't die of covid and like how weird that is for like people just dying in like everyday and almost mundane ways in the middle of something that's so massive and i think uh Emily St. John Mandel really captures that here mm-hmm. in like something as simple as, you know, him just dying of a heart attack on the precipice of this event that would change history. When it really touches on the kind of chaotic nature of the story of like the way characters impact one another in yes. bizarre and such coincidental ways. And mm-hmm. the fact that like this death would be so significant to so many people if not for what immediately like in the next week followed Mm -hmm. and just kind of like yeah people would just die naturally right before something like this happened yeah uh so just like and and in the setting of the scene with like there's fake snow falling on the stage Mm -hmm. one of the main differences though is in the book the character of jeevan he was formerly a paparazzi paparazzo uh, whatever the singular. Whatever correct gender <laughs> <laughs> the paparazzi have. <laughs> yes. Um, 
he was formerly, you know, a paparazzi person and slash entertainment writer. And now he is training to become a paramedic. So, like, we immediately find out that he's kind of this guy who kind of doesn't quite know what he wants to do with his life. Yeah. But this moment is really significant because he, in the book, talks about, like, he acted when no one else did. And even though Arthur died, he wasn't able to save him. It still was like a purposeful moment for Jeevan where he was like, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to be that that one person that notices. I want to be that one person that tries to make a difference and is able to sometimes save people, but other times not. But like it kind of rejuvenates him. Yeah. The show takes a different approach where Jeevan is still the first one to notice and jump up on stage. Except when he gets there, he's like, uh, <laughs> Does anyone know CPR? I don't know what to do. I found this so bizarre. Everyone at least knows how to start CPR. Yes. Right? Like I would at least start CPR and I'd be like, I need some help. Someone else help me with CPR. Yeah. Like all you got to do is pump. <laughs> like just do chest compressions, man. Like. Basically, yeah. <laughs> And I mean, I, I I find it interesting, though, because like they're clearly setting up this idea of he's kind of aimless. Like yeah. he's not even beginning to figure out what he wants to do, like his character in the book. No. And he's very obviously helpless. And this is kind of um, repeated later almost when he talks to Kirsten, mm-hmm. a very young girl who's in this production of King Lear. Yeah. She's a young actress. And he asks her about being an actress. And she's like, yeah, it's like what I've always wanted to do. And I've always known I wanted to be an actress. And he's like, wow. <laughs> like, I What's would, that like? Yeah. I would say the problem, though, is that, like, I think this is a good start to his character. But I don't really think it's kind of reiterated or brought back up until, like, episode nine? nine? Yeah. Yeah. And by that point, like, you've kind of forgotten this aspect of his character. Yeah. I think it could have been, like, incorporated more into the story. Definitely. And so in the book, Jeevan, after Arthur dies, has this interaction with Kirsten. He's kind of comforting her because she's crying. She's like, I really cared about Arthur. We were close. You know, he was kind of mentoring me in acting. And they just kind of have a moment together where he comforts her and then he goes home. And this is when the pandemic starts to break. And, you know, he gets a call from his friend who's a doctor in a hospital who basically gives him the scoop and is like, listen, this is not going to go well. Like, you need to get out of the city. And if you can't get out of the city, you need to, like, hole up somewhere because things are going to get bad. Well, and also the reality of this connected to COVID where... It started in the country of Georgia or region, and uh, they downplayed its significance. Yeah. Kind of like what happened in China. Yeah. uh, Where when it broke out, it was like, oh, this is actually really Really pretty bad. (laughs) Yeah. So that was kind of interesting to see that like present day connection. But Jeevan, who like knows his friend is a very calm, like cool headed person, Mm -hmm. is like, fuck, he's serious. This is real. And so he goes to stock up on food and he yeah. goes to his brother's apartment because his brother um, is a paraplegic. Yeah. And he's like, let's just... Uh, Wait this out. Yeah, let's like go into full lockdown mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think their idea of what was happening was what we thought at the beginning of COVID, like just lockdown, <laughs> yeah, right? Like yeah. everything just shut down and you can ride it out. Obviously, that's not what happens in this book, um, but that's their intention. And then in the show, though... Jeevan is with Kirsten and ends up walking her home because the person that's supposed to take care of her is is gone. And so they get to her house, but her parents aren't there. She can't get inside and Jeevan can't leave her. And they even have this moment where she's like going to go 
back home and he's like, I can't kidnap you. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, wait, your parents just texted me. They said you can come home with me. And I was because I was literally like, Jeevan, do not let this little yeah. girl walk home alone in a pandemic in she, the winter. She's so small and she's still wearing like her dress I like know. under her coat. And yeah. Yeah. So he lies about like, oh, your parents said this was fine. And I kind of was waiting for this moment to come back at some point, like him having to like reconcile with this lie he told her. Yeah. For her to, for her to realize like you didn't know my parents, did you? But it doesn't come back. No. <laughs> um, but he convinces her to go back to his brother's apartment. Mm-hmm. There's this great line. I, I, I honestly think Jeevan is kind of the breakout star of this show. I agree. He's so charismatic. He's very funny. Mm-hmm. He delivers all of the lines I think I laughed at in this show. Yeah. Where as soon as they walk into the brother's house, he's like, the world is ending. Everyone's going to die. And then he's like, sorry, Kirsten, I was lying to you. <laughs> when he said it would be fine earlier. Yeah. <laughs> It's great. Yeah. And so then it's it's in the in the show, Kirsten is with Jeevan and Frank as they hole up at the end of the world. Whereas in the book, it's just Jeevan and Frank and Kirsten goes home by herself. And then we flash forward 20 years and society has collapsed. The world has ended. And now Kirsten is like 27, 28. Mm -hmm. And she's part of the traveling symphony. Yes, which this whole setup is just so fascinating. I love it. It's so great because uh, so much of the theme of this story is about art and not only just art, but like kind of the humanity in it and kind of people's innate desire to like produce art, to enjoy art, to yes. kind of just like have appreciation for things like even the museum mm-hmm. of civilization, just kind of to appreciate objects and yes. items and yeah. performance. And so this group is a a large caravan of musicians and actors who go around playing music and performing Shakespeare for different little communities around Lake Michigan yeah. in the end time. I shouldn't call it the end times because yeah. it's not. It's kind of like... What I love about this book and this story is that uh, the author skips, like, the worst part, right? Yeah. She skips the part where, like, and it's referred to throughout the book, and it you kind of see flashes of it in the show as well, yeah. where it's the worst, where the violence is the worst. People are distrustful of each other. Um, there's a lot of deaths because people don't know how to survive. And it's instead, it's 20 years later. Instead of it being like, um, you know, people trying to survive in a Mad Max type world. It's 20 years later when people are mostly settled down in different settlements and villages. Mm-hmm. Community has formed and now this traveling symphony exists that just goes from village to village and does Shakespeare performances and, you know, musical performances mm-hmm. and kind of Instead of being like, oh, what chaos would happen when society collapsed? Yes, let's talk about that. But let's talk about, like, what could be built afterward. I mean, because humans are naturally cooperative and social and communal. And, like, that's how civilization has grown over the years. Not to, like, uh, gloss over the many, many conflicts that have happened throughout human history, obviously. And the chaos of humanity as well. For sure. But, like, ultimately, I think our sense of community... And trusting one another is stronger. And that's how why we haven't just completely destroyed each other at yeah. any point throughout history. Mm-hmm. And why I think like if something like this did happen 
in terms of like a pandemic, like people would still manage to come together enough to people like would continue. still form communities. Yeah. Yeah. And we meet some people in the symphony. Kirsten is there. She has a very close friend, August, who's almost like her brother. Mm-hmm. They have this very strong bond. Um, there is Dieter, who's kind of like a father to Kirsten in the show. Sarah is sort of like a mother figure to her. She's yeah. the conductor. She's the one who first kind of gets her to join the symphony yeah. to begin with. And then there's Alex, who was born after the pandemic, who in the show, she has a much larger role and is sort of like a sister to Kirsten. Yeah, there's a, a lot of interesting just details specifically in the book about like how they live day to day. Um, you know, using the hair from their horses to like restring, uh, their violins yes. and string instruments, how they raid, not raid, but like they go through abandoned homes to find, uh, items that might be valuable, just kind of like their day to day lives yes. and traveling from like town to town and kind mm-hmm. of just, it's so fascinating and you kind of see how all of this would work. Yeah, and I love that this is a community. This is a family, right? They're traveling together. They're like a, a group of, you know, actors and artists. But like Mandel does a really great job of also like just humanizing them. And I just want to read a portion of the book. I wish I could just read this whole thing, but I'm going to skip around <laughs> a little bit. This is in chapter 10. So the problem with the traveling symphony was the same problem suffered by every group of people everywhere since before the collapse, undoubtedly since well before the beginning of recorded history. Start, for example, with the third cello. He had been waging a war of attrition with Dieter for some months following a careless remark Dieter had made about the perils of practicing an instrument in dangerous territory, the way the notes can carry for a mile on a clear day. Dieter hadn't noticed. Dieter did, however, harbor considerable resentment toward the second horn because of something she'd said once about his acting. The resentment didn't go unnoticed. The second horn thought he was being petty. But when the second horn was thinking of people she didn't like very much, she ranked him well below the seventh guitar. (laughs) Uh, And then they talk about the seventh guitar for a little bit uh, and then say... But the first flute was less irritated by the seventh guitar than she was by the second violin, August, who was forever missing rehearsal, always off somewhere, breaking into another house with Kirsten, and until recently, Charlie, like he thought the symphony was a scavenging outfit who played music on the side. Uh, August was annoyed by the third violin, who liked to make insinuating remarks about August and Kirsten, even though they'd ever only been close friends. Let me see. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. And so on and so forth, etc., And this collection of petty jealousies, neuroses, undiagnosed PTSD cases, and simmering resentments lived together, traveled together, rehearsed together, performed together 365 days of the year, permanent company, permanent tour. But what made it bearable were the friendships, of course. The camaraderie and the music and the Shakespeare and the moments of transcendent beauty and joy when it didn't matter who used the last of the Rosen on their bow or who anyone had slept with, although someone, probably Saeed, had written Sartre... I'm probably mispronouncing that. Sartre? Sartre? Is that a name? Yes. Okay. Hell is other people in pen inside one of the caravans, and someone else had scratched out other people and substituted flutes. (laughs) 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 And I just love that part so much because it's so realistic about what people are like. Yes. But it's also so beautiful in that, like, that pettiness transcends even the collapse of society and people are still like annoyed with each other about stupid shit somehow yeah somehow all those petty resentments touch more on the familial quality of the group than like 
the love or caring or fr- like she like quickly is like, yeah, and we also loved each other and yeah, stuff. Yeah, but yeah, like- yeah. <laughs> but remember that comment you made to me two years ago? Yes. I never forgot it. <laughs> yeah. You just it does such a good job of establishing the bond between everyone in a way that like I don't think the show ever really yeah felt like there's no um august character no in the or if there is like he's so brief and not important like Mm -hmm. he's like this just the super close friend of kirsten and is always kind of with her they spend a lot of the book together and like they have such a good friendship in the show they kind of pair her more with alex yeah who is going through a bunch of shit in the show and they're relationship is much more antagonistic than anything yeah and so like i just don't think you ever feel the sense of community that i think is so significant in the book yeah and also in the book um kirsten is close friends with charlie who um had had her baby previously and decided to stay in a community um when she had her baby so like in the book charlie has already had the baby they're coming back for her um, two years later, because that's how long it takes them to rotate yeah. through their like tour of the area. Um, so they come back to the area, whereas in the show, Charlie is about to give birth. Yes, she is pregnant, and Kirsten is like really pissed to find out she wants to stay in this town. Yeah, because she's gonna have a newborn. <laughs> and she doesn't want to be on the road. Yeah, and Kirsten is like just kind of really pissy at her. Says something about, like, well, whenever you have the baby, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then I guess she goes into labor. I know. It wasn't obvious at the time, but Charlie, like, gets wheelchaired away. And then, like, a scene later, you just see her with a baby, and I'm like, oh, she had it. (laughs) I guess she had the baby. And, like, just the fact that that scene establishes that Kirsten and Charlie are friends but Kirsten just seems so uncaring. I know. Like, her friend's about to give birth, which is very dangerous now in the time of no hospitals or anesthesia or I mean, anything. it's dangerous now. Yeah. Let alone in the post-apocalyptic hellscape. Yeah. And so I think this kind of establishes Kirsten's character in the show as very, like, hostile, defensive, and antagonistic. And it's kind of hard to like her, especially from the beginning. I think they could have had a bit of that and then had her reconcile with Charlie later and yeah. be like, hey, I'm sorry. Like, And I, I mean, she does kind of say she's sorry later. I guess, but I guess it's after the, the baby is, is born already, so it just feels like... Uh, yeah, it just kind of doesn't give you the best impression of her right off the bat. Yeah. In the book, when they ha- return for Charlie, they come back to this town and they're like, the town was normal before, but when they get there now... They can tell that a lot has changed. There's less people. Um, The vibe is really weird. And when they go to find Charlie, uh, people there tell her that she, her baby, and her partner left. And then they hear about a prophet who has taken over the town now. Um, It's interesting. They find this whole, like, graveyard full of real graves. And then, like, markers that aren't actual graves, but are names of people who've been, like, exiled from the community. Yeah, who left. And Charlie's name is on there. Yeah. I love, one thing I love about this is how they're like, ugh, God, one of these towns. Yeah. And just the fact that, like, prophets and, like, messiahs and, like, cult leaders leaders aren't an uncommon thing. Yeah. Which they wouldn't be. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you just have to, like, there would be eccentric people who kind of, like, brainwash a town or community Mm -hmm. and 
claim it for their own. And so they're like, oh, like, we got to get out of here. Like, we've been here before. We've seen this kind of thing before. Let's, like, move on. Yeah, so they kind of quickly leave the town um, to get out of the creepy prophet. And they're going to head. They think that Charlie and her family headed to the Museum of Civilization, which is at the Severn City Airport. Yes. So they're deviating from their usual route to try to find Charlie. Mm -hmm. In the show, they stop at a town. Yeah. And while they're there, they meet a couple of strangers, this mm-hmm. kind of Jesus-looking guy with, like, <laughs> long hair, and he's just like, I'm just a traveler. He has a moment where he's talking to Alex alone that yeah. kind of scares Kirsten. Um, but later, after their performance of of Shakespeare, Kirsten finds him and talks to him one-on-one. Yeah. And she kind of mentions a bunch of lies that she caught him in mm-hmm. earlier about, like, oh, he mispronounced Mackinac slash Mackinac Island. Yes. Which is funny because we know how that's pronounced from our episode on uh, Somewhere in Time. Yeah, because we mispronounced it. Because we mispronounced it, yeah. (laughs) And someone corrected us and we were like, oh shit. Damn it. Uh, Yeah, like she knows he mispronounced Mackinac Island where he said he was from and like he was eating a mushroom that isn't from there. and, uh, And this is where the guy is like, listen, me and my crew, crew, or me and this other guy who I'm with, we need to join your symphony for a short time. Mm-hmm. And he's being real creepy. And she's like, no. Yeah. And he's like, OK, well, then all of your symphony members are going to start disappearing and like you're going to be in danger and blah, blah, blah. And then she fucking stabs him. Here's the thing, Ian. She doesn't stab him enough, though. No. And if you're going to stab someone, here's the thing. If you're going to stab someone to kill, to kill because they're threatening you, just go all the way. Right. She just stabs him. And then leaves him and he's not dead. Like, go for the throat, man. Like, go for the throat. Like, finish him off. Yeah. And the next morning, she's, like, surprised to find that he's his body isn't there and that he's probably still alive somewhere. And she's like, oh, maybe if I would have stabbed him a few more times, he would be dead. Here's the thing. This scene, because it's not known at this point, but that man that she stabbed was the prophet. Yeah. And... This just makes both of them look so dumb. Both of them in this one scene. He looks dumb because he has no power and he starts threatening her and her whole family. So, like, yeah, yeah you shouldn't be shocked when you get fucking stabbed. Yeah. And, like, you probably should be dead. Like, he didn't, like, survive due to anything that he did or knew. No. He just lucked out. Yeah. And she's dumb for not, like, finishing the job and then being like, oh. He, he got away. He, he crawled away and, like, uh-oh. Like, it was when it happened, like, you and I were just like, what? This is so weird. Yeah. Because she doesn't tell anyone about what happened. She just leaves him. No. And goes to bed and wakes up and is like, oh, no, he's gone. And Yeah. It just, it was such a contrived event for, it, like, what happens later. And it felt so random, too. I wasn't quite sure why she was stabbing him. Yeah, like... I'm like, is this enough of a reason to stab a man? I don't know. Because, like, yeah, he's threatening you, but, like, at this point, you don't know that he has any, like... Power. Or a child army or whatever. Like, you don't know any of that. I would just be like, you're creepy. I'm going to tell everyone to, like... Avoid you. Avoid you. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, just um, a weird way to end this episode. Definitely. So the format of the book and the show is very interesting because it kind of flashes back and forth in time. The book is constantly switching from 
you know, character to character to past, present, future, a lot of different timelines, a lot of different characters. The show does that too, but really kind of dedicates each episode to a storyline, like the present symphony storyline or flashbacks with a character. Yeah. And so we kind of get an episode uh, you know, one of the series episodes here that focuses on Arthur Leander, who's the man who died on stage before the pandemic started, and his first wife, uh, Miranda. And the book kind of is flashing back to this. It, it has a dedicated section, but there's more parts kind of going back and forth. Yeah, it'll kind of like give you a chunk of it, then come back to it like yeah. 50, 100 pages later. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miranda is a woman, so... In the book, she actually grew up on the same kind of um, remote region of Canada. Yeah. It's an island, actually, that Arthur grew up on. Mm-hmm. So Arthur and her grew up on this kind of very rural little island. Yeah. And he became like this big movie star, and she ended up moving out to Toronto, mm-hmm. which is how they end up kind of like re-meeting mm-hmm. and forming a relationship Yeah. But they have this to, like, bond over coming from the same place. Yeah. And in the show, they have this kind of meet-cute at a diner where Arthur and Miranda, like, he sees her drawing and kind of comes up to her, talks to her, ends up getting her to come to a party with him, and the two of them fall in love. And there's a bit of an age difference between them. Arthur is already, like, a movie star. Yeah. Um, But Miranda's very down-to-earth and centered. And, like, her whole vibe is so interesting because she is an artist. She creates um, a graphic, like, graphic novels. She illustrates. And she's so deeply absorbed in that world. But at the same time, her business life is really interesting. And she actually enjoys working in kind of, like, an office and very organized and structured setting. Yeah, the graphic novel, which it's it's such a unique and specific hobby, but that's what it is to her. I don't think she has any aspirations of publishing it, of doing no. anything with it. It's just like kind of a, it's a sci-fi story, but it's also, I think, deeply personal for her. Yeah. And so she does this hobby, but like her career is centered around this shipping company. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, I mean, she starts off as like the boss's like, Secretary. Secretary. But she ends up, I think, moving up kind of in position mm-hmm. uh, before like before and after her marriage with Arthur. Yeah. And the comics that she creates are Station Eleven. And it's about this man who's, uh, what is he, Dr. Eleven? <laughs> Dr. Eleven, <laughs> Dr. Yes. Eleven. And it's this kind of, you know, spacecraft station that has left Earth and is damaged and there's these factions on the on the space station that are against at war with each other. And it's very complicated and interesting, but like from what it sounds like in the art, it sounds beautiful. And in fact, in the book, Miranda talks about uh, reading Calvin and Hobbes comics. I yes, I was gonna mention this as a bonus if not brought up naturally. Yeah, and how she loved the spaceman Spiff mm-hmm. um comics in the Calvin and Hobbes universe and how she loved the landscapes and was inspired by them to create the Station Eleven comics. And I love that because I love Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes is pure and amazing and just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh I think Miranda's character is so good in the book. I find her so interesting because she has and I think this is highlighted because before she's with Arthur, she is dating this, like, painter. Yeah. Who's very pretentious. He shits on her a lot for, like, having this corporate job, even though his painting isn't really... Paying the bills. Yes. And 
So there's this duality of her where she went to art school originally, Mm -hmm. but now she's doing this corporate job that she secretly kind of likes. Yeah. And, you know, this is just highlighted by her conflict with, like, her present boyfriend. And I think this, like, uh, duality of her is so interesting, and I love reading about it. Yeah. I think the show doesn't really get into it enough. Mm -hmm. Partly because, I mean, just doesn't seem to be interested in that, but, like, also, Miranda is such a closed off and private character. Yeah. And I think you get that a little bit in the book. Mm-hmm. But obviously a book can get more into her. In her inner, thoughts. Yeah, in her thoughts. But like in the show, she's just kind of so cold and stoic and closed off that you don't really, I think, understand how she feels about anything or. Yeah. And the show kind of tries to do work with that by having her regret later on Mm -hmm. that she was so closed off to Arthur and that kind of implying that she maybe drove him away a little bit with her art. Yeah, but like Arthur's also kind of a piece of shit who is like clearly cheating on her. Even though he says he wasn't cheating on her. Oh yeah, that's right. He's like, oh, I never did sleep with my co-star, but I did later and I did marry her. Yeah, there's this scene, this dinner party scene that's in both the book and the show where Miranda kind of realizes that Arthur wants to be with someone else. And he claims in the show that he never cheated on her, but in the book, it's clear that Arthur's having an affair with his co-star, Elizabeth. And I mean, even if he didn't like physically cheat on her, he clearly is like vibing yeah. with a woman That's who he shouldn't be. Yeah. yeah. The reaction though is very different in the show. She sets her artist studio on fire. Yeah. Because he showed the art to Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. This doesn't happen in the book. I'm like, wow, another woman's eyes touch your art and you must burn it. <laughs> like, <laughs> Or just like as a fuck you for... What the, the implied relationship she thinks he's having? Yeah, why would she? But why would she do that to her own art? I don't get it. Yeah, because it what? Yeah, you do see the art actually on fire too. Yeah, I don't know. It was kind of one of those things that like is an extreme moment, but doesn't feel justified by like the subtext of the scene or what mm-hmm. comes before it. Yeah, in the book, she doesn't set it on fire. She just kind of has this realization that her marriage to Arthur is over, and in fact. She has an interaction with one of the paparazzi outside Arthur's home, and it's Jeevan. <laughs> yeah, back when he was doing that for yeah, a living. Yeah, and he kind of takes advantage of her and takes a photo of her in a vulnerable moment. And it's something that Jeevan kind of regrets later on in life. Yeah, uh, so that was kind of an interesting interaction, one of these, like, crossing of paths that's, like, so interesting. Mm-hmm. In the Right before the pandemic, she reconnects with Arthur and has published... Um, in the book, it's volume one and two of her graphic novels. In the show, it's just one volume of Station Eleven. And she gives it to him as a gift and gives him another copy that he can send to his son, Tyler. And this is sort of like a reconnecting moment with them. The show really plays it up more of the two of them still being in love with each other. Yeah. In the book, it's more like two people that used to have a connection and now really don't. And it's sad. It is. Yeah. Kind of just... um. Like, they haven't spoken for, like, fucking 11 years. Yeah. And it just kind of being odd. And I really think it's interesting, too, in the book. It's talked a lot about from her perspective and from his friend Clark's perspective. They have, like, two interactions with him pretty soon before he dies. Yeah. And they describe him as being very performative. Yeah, they feel like he's acting. Yes, to them. Like, just, like, in one-on-one situations. And it, like, just something about him feels, like, very 
False. False now, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I found that to be his evolution in terms of like his acting and kind of him as a person I found to be like really interesting. Yeah. Miranda ends up right as the pandemic is beginning in Malaysia for work. And this is when the flu is breaking all over the world. And there's like kind of a side plot in the show where she tries to get out. Mm-hmm. And in fact, her boss, Leon, um, ha- like arranges passage for her on a boat to get out of Malaysia. And when she hears the news of Arthur's death, because Clark calls her and tells her that he had a heart attack, she decides not to go and instead stays to die, basically. Yeah, which is odd. And the the episode ends on this really surreal moment where... There's a knock on her apartment or her hotel room door. And when she answers it, it's the uh, Dr. Eleven spacesuit man. Yeah. Which there's this moment and I didn't catch any other time this happened, even though there probably are other moments where she's on a bus and in the back of the bus, like out of focus is Dr. Eleven, the spaceman. Mm -hmm. And I was like, holy shit, because I saw it and I was like, I wonder if he's like in the background of any other scenes that like we didn't notice. I'm sure he was. Probably. (laughs) But like he's holding a coffee cup and I think that's what drew my eye to him. And I'm like, what is that holding a coffee cup? And I'm like, is that a like deep sea diver? And I was like, oh my God, it's the spaceman. (laughs) Yeah. So then uh, going back, I guess we were talking about the show anyway, going to a very specific episode in the show that's not in the book at all. I call this the golf course episode. (laughs) The country club episode. And um, I don't know how everyone else felt watching this episode. I'd be very interested to those who had not read the book, but it really felt kind of bizarrely inserted into the story. There's really, oh God, like, like inserted is the such a great word for it because it really feels like none of it had to happen at all no because later on parts of it they almost act like they didn't happen or they're written off so quickly with such a brief moment of dialogue yeah um so essentially it starts off with this really like this info dump yeah. of them being like oh we're at the place where years ago we used to split up between the symphony and the actors because one town liked the music and one town liked the acting and that went well for a while until Gil the director uh, cheated on Sarah the conductor and then Sarah shot at him and then he moved to the town where they did the acting so we don't go there anymore but yeah <laughs> that's it it's like wow I wonder what's going to happen in this episode <laughs> after all that explanation and of course um, they split up because Kirsten Wants her Station Eleven comic back. Yeah. Which she hid for a weird, inexplicable reason. At the golf course. At the golf course. So she lies to Sarah and says that uh, Gil's wife, she heard Gil's current wife died. Yeah. Yeah. Who Sarah never liked. And so Sarah, like, wants to see Gil. Mm -hmm. So she's like, let's split up and do the thing we always used to do. So they get there. And, of course, Gil's wife is not dead. And it's awkward. And they talk about the show and performances. Kirsten gets her book back. Gil is really weird. I find his character so bizarre. Yes. Every scene with him is confusing. And there's like a part where Kirsten tries to get him to come back with the group. And he says no. And I'm like, is there supposed to be a relationship between them? Because we've had no hint of it. And it feels like they're referencing things that we have no context for. Yeah. You know, when she starts inviting him back, you have no idea how Kirsten actually feels about him. And later on in the show, we get a flashback scene of her as a child with Gil. Yeah. And he's weird in that scene, too. He's also weird in that (laughs) scene. But like. 
you just don't know what their relationship is. So when she's asking him to come back, I'm like, is there an ulterior motive here That's that I'm what I not getting? But it doesn't seem like there is. Mm-hmm. It, he, yeah, his character just feels like I have no idea how I'm supposed to feel about him. She's also having a conflict with Alex, who's like her sister and was born after the pandemic because Alex admits that the prophet tried to convince her to join his cult and she was gonna join until Kirsten stabbed him so they couldn't meet each other. Uh, And Kirsten's like, why would you want to join him? And we never get an explanation from Alex as to why she wanted to join the prophets group. What would make her leave her family, the traveling symphony? And like, it's just the two of them fighting for like the whole episode. And at one point, Alex like takes off on a horse and then comes back later. And we're like, wait, did she leave? I thought she left to go be with the prophet. And then she's just back. Yeah. She was like, oh, my horse bucked me off. And so I couldn't. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And like on top of that, in the episode where Alex talks to the prophet, it seems like they've only been talking for 10 minutes. Yeah. And I'm like, she was going to go with that dude who she doesn't know. And additionally, the prophet's plan was he wanted the symphony to take him with them. Why would he want to take Alex? So why what's Alex's like role in this? Like, why was he trying to get her because it seemed like they were going to sneak away together yeah but that wasn't the prophet's plan yeah and then of course this episode ends with um some of the prophet's child army uh strapping some landmines on themselves and uh blowing gill up because oh my god because the prophet showed up they tell this story the prophet showed up and stole our children yeah like he took he kidnapped our children And there's one throwaway line where a woman later on is like, sometimes I wonder if we shouldn't be out there looking for them. And I'm like, probably (laughs) like he stole your children, right? Like, why wouldn't you look for them? Yeah. Why didn't you pursue them? Like, why aren't you looking for them? That's so extreme. Yeah. And those are the children that return later with landmines strapped to them. Yeah. And blowing themselves up around Gil. Yeah. And I'm like, what Why? the fuck is happening? It's so bizarre. It's like, and it feels like such a dream, too. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it's really happening. The whole time I was like, wait, did this happen or not? Yeah, because even after the fact, the next time we catch up with Kirsten, she's like running away from the country club. And we never see like the... Uh, explosion site or mm-hmm. like they just ca- they just mentioned like oh there were no bodies left there and yeah. I'm like what? <laughs> like it just felt like it was imaginary or something and like super bizarre. Very very weird. And on one hand it feels like this episode was just written and inserted in the story but like it ties into so many other things and I'm like that can't be the case. But I also don't know how to explain it. No, I don't either. And it does split up the group, which I guess is important, but it doesn't feel as important. And it was a whole hour of this. Like the episodes are like an hour. And so it just felt it didn't feel very necessary. Let's um check back in with the book, though, because after the Traveling Symphony leaves the crazy town with the prophet and they're like, let's get the hell out of here. They discover that a young girl has stowed away in their caravan to fleeing the prophet. Yes, because she's like 12 years old and she was uh, promised to the prophet to be like his next bride. Yeah. So this is fucked up shit, right? He already has four wives. He's, you know, sexually assaulting these women. And in her case, she's, you know, 12. And so she's like, I can't 
do that, I'm going to come with you guys. But now, of course, the symphony is really scared because they think that the prophet and his people are going to be chasing after them to get this girl back. And they usually try not to involve themselves at all in like the politics of any community, even yeah. when it's like an extreme situation, they try not to do anything because mm-hmm. it would put any everyone in danger. And so, yeah, they just but they're like, we can't return this child to like her future rapist. Yeah. Like, OK, <laughs> we'll just keep moving. Yeah. And I just want to say, I think this setup for the conflict between the symphony and the prophet is so just it's simple but it's effective and it makes sense and like why everyone's doing the things that they're doing like you know the motivations yes you know the stakes you know what's happening and one by one some of the people in the symphony start to disappear uh saeed and dieter are on watch one night and they just don't come back and nobody can find them yeah and it's like very unsettling Mm -hmm. and they have to just continue moving. Yeah. And then eventually uh, one of their clarinets also disappears. Yeah. And I love the way this escalates um, because then eventually Kirsten and August are separate from the group. Yeah. And they're like fishing and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, scouting ahead. And then the suddenly whole, the symphony's gone. The whole symphony's just gone. Yeah. Like the caravan, the like everyone is just disappeared. Yeah. And it's so unsettling and like so well done. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, when, just when you compare this to the show and how complicated and like unnecessarily just convoluted everyone's motivations are. And you're are. trying to keep track of people and you're like, well, where's this person? Why are they doing this? And I love too that in the book, it's very clear that like, they all know where they're going, right? Yeah. And they're like, we we can, they look for Saeed and Dieter and the clarinet for a while, but then they're like, we have to keep moving. They know we're going to the airport. Yeah. Um, we just have to trust that they'll meet us there. And so Kirsten and August, when they're separated from the symphony, they're like, we have no idea where they went. All we can do is go to our destination, our next destination, and hope that we meet up with them. That's their like fallback plan. Yeah. And I think this is so starkly contrasted in the show when Kirsten separates herself from the group after the golf course episode (laughs) and they are gonna go continue because it's like fucking raining i think yeah they're gonna keep going to the airport and sarah is someone's like what about kirsten and sarah's like she'll find us she always does yeah and we're like what does she know you're going to the airport yeah because it was decided at the last minute yeah that they they were gonna go to the airport that wasn't their plan at all and i'm like that's so shitty that you would just like ab- leave her. Yeah. Yeah. Just a weird moment that felt like once again, cutting away at this idea that they're like a close knit family. Yeah. For them to just be like, eh, fuck her. She'll find us. Whatever. Or she won't. Or I she don't won't. Know. <laughs> like she annoyed me anyway. <laughs> so speaking of this point in the show, uh, after the golf course scene, the, the explosion, uh, Kirsten is like, I'm going to go on my own to find the prophet, because this is my responsibility. My stabbing gone wrong. My stabbing. I didn't <laughs> I didn't stab with true intention. So she goes to find the prophet and kind of like end things. Yeah. She stumbles across the group, the undersea they're called. Mm-hmm. Which it, is a reference to Station Eleven. Yes. And it's a whole group of children who take Kirsten to see the prophet. Yes who is is still suffering from his stab. Yeah, and she goes to finish the stab, you know? She's like, (laughs) a a second stab will do. Yeah. And he's kind of like, listen, you need me because if I die, 
then my group of crazy children are just going to go rogue and kill everyone, including you and your group. And then he kind of gives this explanation that, like, he was injured, which is why the kids decided to, on their own, strap mines to themselves and suicide bomb Gil. Uh, Even though why they have any connection to Gil or the country club people. I guess they're the kids, though, from the country club. They are. Yeah, I guess that's true. But, like, (laughs) yeah, that's... And we didn't even, like, understand what he said the first time we watched it. No. So we still thought for, the like, the whole show that he was, like, directly responsible for children suicide bombing themselves. I mean, you could still argue that he is oh, responsible. for sure. I just would have been surprised if a show would have gone to that extent. Usually they're like, well, I mean, like, he didn't really do it, you know? Yeah. Because like, yeah. they end up making him, like, a whole, trying to make him a whole sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. Uh, So, yeah, and he explains how the Museum of Civilization... The symphony is already there. Yeah, half the symphony is already there, and the rest are going, but, like, how does he know that at this point? I don't know, and he also kind of tells Kirsten that it's a bad place and they're going to be trapped there. And Kirsten is like, all right, I guess (laughs) I'll trust you. The man who lives... In a convent of children yeah. that he has formed. And brainwashed. And brainwashed. This grown man with a bunch of children, I'm sure, is perfectly safe and has good intentions deep down. I The farther this show went and their attempt to, like, humanize the prophet, yeah. the more I was just kind of, like, dumbfounded. I'm like, are they really going to make this guy sympathetic or are they really trying to do that yeah it was like a peter pan lost boys situation but like sinister you know what i mean like i just like michael jackson yeah i mean like (laughs) kidnapping these kids right because they were taken that's what we were told at the country club and they've been cult brainwashed into believing this station 11 stuff and like a few of them willingly strapped mines to themselves and blew themselves up for some unknown reason, even though he had no part of it, allegedly. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I just don't feel like that aspect of his character, why he would recruit a child army, was really delved into at all. No, and, like, later we get a origin story for the prophet slash, you know, his real name's Tyler. And there is some compelling stuff to that origin story, but why it led him to brainwashing children into a cult that he has knowingly created from a comic book yeah is like that's 20 steps (laughs) away from where we began and i don't know how we got here for some reason kirsten is like cool why don't we travel together and we'll get to the airport and i'll get all my friends out of there and it'll all be fine on their way though they get attacked by bandits and kirsten ends up murdering all of them Dramatically. Yeah. So about that. Um, In the book, Kirsten has killed two people. Yeah. She has little knife tattoos on her wrist for the two people that she was forced to kill on the road. Yeah. And we get kind of the backstory of like each of those situations. And, you know, she talks about it in terms of like, it was necessary, but I still feel the weight of having to do that. They talk about ghosts at one point. Yeah. And this idea that Kirsten feels that maybe she's haunted by the people that she's killed. 
and feeling responsible and heavy for that burden and wishing that future generations like Alex won't ever have to kill someone. Yeah. Because it is a heavy burden to bear. Whereas Kirsten in the show, she has like a bunch of knife tattoos, like 20 or something. So yeah. She's killed a lot of people. She doesn't seem too concerned about it. It's more of like a badge of like honor rather than a weight. Yeah. Whereas the tattoos in the book, it's a burden. It's a reminder to Kirsten of the weight she bears for that, that those lives that she took. And in the show, it's more like, Look at all the people I've killed. Look how fucking cool she is throwing her knives. And yeah. like, it ends with her like facing off against four guys and she ends up like murdering all of them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it just kind of, um, you know, I've heard a lot of reviews for the show talk about like, this is the post-apocalyptic show, but minus like the badassery that like The Walking Dead or other. Yeah. Similar, but like. I disagree with that because it really is trying to make Kirsten out to be like this. A badass. A bad, not that she isn't in the book, but like she's not a badass because she's proud of it. Yeah, she's not proud of of it or like she didn't want to. And Mm -hmm. it really balances that out. Whereas in the show, it's kind of made out to be cool, I think. Yeah. Let's talk about the Clark episode of the show and check in with Clark in the book, too, because he's a close friend of Arthur's. They kind of grew up together or had time together when they were in college. And we see how he's on his way to Arthur's funeral. And actually, Elizabeth and Tyler, uh, Arthur's second wife and his son, are on the same flight with him. And then, of course, the pandemic hits and their flight gets diverted to a little place called Severn City. And so they're stuck in the airport as civilization collapses around them. Yeah. Clark has a very corporate job of trying to rehabilitate, like, CEOs or, like, (laughs) coaching CEOs of, like, major companies. Yeah. And something I really like about the book is that it kind of, it both kind of talks about the absurdity of work culture in the modern day. Yeah. Like, they have one scene later when he's, like, an older man, and he's like, remember when we used to talk about shooting an email? Oh, my God, Ian, I want to read it. (laughs) Okay. I marked this part that I want to read. And honestly, this is something that I remembered from reading the book so specifically. Yeah. And I would think about it all the time. So I'm just going to read this part. So um, he's talking to someone else named Garrett, and Garrett says, did I ever tell you about my last phone call? Um, the last words he'd spoken into a telephone were a bouquet of corporate cliches, seared horribly into memory. Let's touch base with Nancy, he remembered saying, and then we should reach out to Bob and circle back next week. I'll shoot Larry an email. Now he said the words, circle back next week, under his breath, perhaps not consciously. Why did we always say we were going to shoot emails? I don't know. I've wondered that too. (laughs) Why couldn't we just say we were going to send them? We were just pressing a button, were we not? Not even a real button, a picture of a button on a screen. Yes, Garrett said. That's exactly what I'm talking about. The phrase circle back always secretly made me think of boats. You leave someone on shore and then you circle back later to get them. I like this one, he said. He's a high-functioning sleepwalker, essentially. Uh, So just like kind of that idea, though, of these corporate cliches and how meaningless it all is and the fact that Garrett is like, the last phone call I ever made was some bullshit phone call when it could have been to my family. And I always think about that. I always think of that idea of like shooting people emails and like why it's so important to us. Yeah. And I think the book does such a good job though of describing the absurdity of a corporate, corporate lingo and just like our day-to-day work culture, but it doesn't um, speak down 
to the people who do it. Yeah. He's never like, oh, I was such a fucking idiot. And like, you know, this whole thing, like, because it still talks about like the present day and like Miranda, for example, and she likes her job. Yeah. You know what I mean? And she enjoys it. And the book doesn't like make her out to seem like an idiot for that. No. And so I think the book does a really good job of balancing that where it's kind of acknowledging kind of the silliness of a lot of our like the modern day yeah. work culture, but not, um, you know. Not being like, we need to return to nature. Yeah, yeah. Not shooting people <laughs> down for it either. Just kind of like acknowledging it. Yeah. And so Clark is at this airport and a plane lands and nobody gets off the plane because people are sick on the plane. And in both the book and the show, uh, this quarantine plane kind of is always there outside yeah. as this reminder of like people actively dying in this plane. It's like very haunting and symbolic. This was another thing I remembered so distinctly from reading this book was like the plane yeah. that like everyone knew was just filled with bodies, but like no one ever touched it or did anything mm -hmm. with it. Yeah. And Clark kind of uses the opportunity of society collapsing to take control of the group. Yeah. And so does Elizabeth and then a uh, security guard miles and specifically the, in the show yeah and the three of them become i call them like the dictators of the airport because they're very like nefarious in they like sit down and plan it too it's weird yeah it's like i don't know how because at some point like clark has sinister vibes yeah but like i don't think elizabeth necessarily did no but and Miles should have, because he did, like, the worst thing out of any of them, but it's yeah. not really addressed. No. So I kind of was never quite sure how I was supposed to feel about any of this. Uh, in the book, like, they, he talks about them all being stranded at the airport and just kind of the progression of, like, well, you know, we eventually just, like, ransacked the restaurant for food and, like, yeah. cooked food for everyone. And then, you know, we went to the gift shop and got extra clothes. And then we decided we had to go out into town to, like, collect things. Yeah. And kind of just talking about the natural evolution. And, like, I don't think it mentions anyone as being, like, a leader. No. And like, Clark is certainly not a leader. No. He begins a museum there, the Museum of Civilization, just memorializing all the items of the past world that are no longer useful, like iPhones and computers and stiletto heels and things <laughs> like that. Yeah. Just wanting to keep a memory of that past time. And he eventually becomes the curator of the museum, you know, 20 years later. You know, he's like in his 70s and doesn't really need to skin deer anymore in this community. <laughs> the community kind of becomes self-sustaining um, and the museum is important to him. And he's just very much like he's not uh, the dictator of this group. He's just no. kind of like chilling. Yeah. And people are like, eh, he's an old man. Let him have his museum. And yeah. I really like to this part in the book describing the museum. And he'll describe something like a snow globe that he has there. Yeah. And he's like, it's such a kitsch stupid little thing from like the past but like if you think about like the company probably overseas that had to like produce these and then yeah. package them and then they were shipped overseas on huge ships and then traveled farther on trucks until they like got here and then like they were unpackaged and sold and mm -hmm. like just kind of like reflecting on the insane global economy that creates such stupid garbage. Yeah. But kind of how... <laughs> the beauty of that? Yeah, kind of how amazing that is at the same time. Yeah. And I just love him reflecting on, like, and just, like, the beauty of objects mm -hmm. and the design of them and just kind of, like, wanting to preserve that. And once again, 
it's silly to a degree to kind of like put a snow globe on a shelf. Yeah. Um, for the aesthetics of it. But the book also isn't like making fun of it necessarily. No. Yeah. Uh, so Tyler in the book and show is really weird as a kid. And like the show kind of has him being very isolated on his like video game system, just kind of like creepy vibes. Um, and I think the book is really interesting too, because his mom, Elizabeth is very like weird and keeps telling people that everything's happening for a reason, including the pandemic and all these people dying, which is like not what you want to hear ever. No. Never say that to somebody. Everything happens for a reason. Honestly, no matter what. <laughs> no matter never what. never say that. And like there's this scene in the book where Clark sees Tyler standing by the quarantine plane reading from the book of Revelations. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I just wanted them to know that it happened for a reason. And kind of says like, we were saved because we are the righteous and we are the light and God chose us, and everyone else who died deserved it. And Clark is like, (laughs) (laughs) And then we find out from Clark that Elizabeth and Tyler end up leaving the airport civilization group and going off with some creepy religious cult in year two of, you know, society after the pandemic. I really love this being kind of the origin of Tyler's, like, later cult leader status. Yeah. It's not from the comic. No. That he formed anything. It's from like, I mean, honestly, it's from the Bible. Like, yeah. First and foremost. But yeah. Like, just this notion of everything happens for a reason. And I love this because it's something we've all heard so much. And I think I've probably said it maybe at one yeah. point. Like, I think it seems like a very non um, threatening or not like, like safe thing to tell someone to try yeah. to comfort them. But it's really also kind of fucked up when you think about it to be like, hey, this horrible thing that happened, God wanted it to happen. Or maybe you deserved it. Yeah. And like it's for the betterment of you as a person Mm -hmm. or it's like so you can grow or like you were a better person, which is why you survived. There's like so many implications in that phrase that are so bad. And I love that that's kind of like the thing that's restated so much from Tyler and Elizabeth Mm -hmm. and kind of the origin of his fucked up worldview. Yeah. And Tyler in the show has other things that happen to him. He's not as religious, but he has this experience where this guy gets out of the quarantine plane and he has survived. And Tyler brings him into the group and is like, he's immune. Yeah. Like he survived because he's immune. And then Miles, the security guard, just shoots him in the head right in front of Tyler. (sighs) So that's a big thing that happened, right? Yeah. And it like Tyler talks about it later and like clearly he was he was kind of traumatized by it. Yeah. I don't think the show ever sets it up, though, for being as significant as it was. No. Like, I don't get why that is what led to him doing what he does later with like the children. Yeah. The quarantine, like the the whole group ends up quarantining Tyler and Elizabeth because they were near the man and they're like, well, he can't be safe. You have to lock them in an airplane for a month alone. And I think that's supposed to be like the bad thing. And that Tyler feels that like Clark and the others betrayed him. And this leads to his decision to like fake his own death and then leave the group. Um, But yeah, it's really just hard to understand what led to what with him. Yeah. And similarly, like Miles and Clark and Elizabeth never bring up that incident again as being significant. Like, no, you shot a man who 
wasn't fine. Yeah, who was like on this airplane for I don't God knows how long. Yeah. Crawled out alive and then you fucking killed him. And yeah. like, I don't know. I guess no one cares. No. And like, it is sad because Tyler did try helping someone and that's the most human because he is so creepy. Mm-hmm. It's surprisingly humane of him. Yeah. And I don't know. I just don't quite get how it all fits together. I agree. We have an episode here that I really kind of loved, which is when Kirsten is injured by uh, the bandit group. She kind of has this experience where she flashes back in her memories and adult Kirsten is there with young Kirsten when she's in the apartment with Frank and Jeevan. And like not, not a lot happens in terms of plot in this episode, but I do think it's really great showing the relationship that the three of them had together and the yeah. camaraderie they had and like the bonds that are formed and this family that's created mm-hmm. as the world is ending around them. Yeah, uh, it's kind of a lot of uh, just hanging out. There's a great scene where, you know, they're all just really run down. And Frank, you kind of think he's losing his mind because he's like looping this audio tape (laughs) back and forth. And then it turns into him doing a rap song. Yeah. Uh, So that was like a great little moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kirsten is wanting to put on a play that she wrote based on Station Eleven. Yeah. There's kind of a weird throwaway thing where Frank, you find out at the beginning that he's like addicted to heroin. Yeah. And the moment you find that out, he flushes his drugs because this incoming pandemic and he doesn't even really go through withdrawals that much. No. And then later on when Jeevan is like, we have to leave the city and find another place Frank doesn't want to go. And in the show, Frank is not um, uh, paraplegic. He just has like kind of a a hip injury. Yeah. But he still doesn't want to go. And, you know, in the book, Frank actually decides to kill himself uh, instead of going with Jeevan. And in in the book, Kirsten is not with them. Um, But he's like, I wouldn't be able to survive out there and decides to kill himself so that Jeevan doesn't have to take care of him anymore, which is really sad. It is sad. This is, like, undercut, though, in the show because, like, he doesn't seem to want to go with them. Yeah. And then later, a guy breaks into the house and ends up killing Frank. Yeah. Which is sad, but I'm like, well, he was... He kind of wanted to die. Yeah, he kind of did want to die already. (laughs) And, like, and it's unclear if Kirsten knew Frank. It seemed like she knew he wasn't going to come with them. Yeah. So her beating herself up for him dying is a little weird because, you know... Yeah. And similarly with, like, the heroin thing. Mm Mm-hmm. It just feels like they have the setup for good drama or conflict in the story, but it's kind of like wasted or not utilized very well. Yeah. Like the heroin thing could have been great. Like, oh my God, an addict in this situation, like, is he using and trying to hide it? Yeah. Does he go into withdrawals and they think he's sick, but he doesn't want to tell them what's actually going on? Yeah. What's the situation? There's no follow through, really. Yeah. You could have done a lot with it, but it kind of like nothing happens with it at all. Mm hmm. If we go back to the book for a little bit, so the members of the symphony have been disappearing and Kirsten and August are separated from the symphony. And as they're traveling to the airport to hopefully meet up with the rest of the group, they see Saeed, um, who's one of the people that's missing. And he's like tied up and some of the prophet's men are with him. Yeah. And uh, Kirsten and August managed to get the jump on them. Mm-hmm. They kill one of the guys. and I think they kill two of them. I think the one runs away, doesn't he? The boy runs away. They oh, kill but the they two still, men. oh, there's still two guys. Yeah, they Kirsten kills one and August kills the other. That's okay. I mm-hmm. thought it was like the same guy. But um, so 
they they manage to save Saeed and they kind of find out what happened, which is that Saeed and Deirdre were taken in order to um, negotiate a return of the girl that they had. Yeah. And unfortunately, though, whatever chloroform or chemical they used when they kidnapped them ended up killing Deirdre. Yeah. Uh, which is just devastating news to Kirsten mm-hmm. and ultimately why they kidnapped the clarinet. Yeah. Uh, because they wanted like a second, a second hostage. A second hostage. I guess it had to be two. I don't know why. The clarinet managed to escape and she got back to the symphony, told them what was going on. And so the symphony immediately started to take an alternate way to the airport, which is how Kirsten and August lost the group. I thought this explanation worked so well. Yeah. Because you still get the vibe at the moment of like, oh my God, were they all taken? Yeah. But then like the more logical explanation of like, no, they just went a different way. Mm-hmm. So they're hoping to all meet up at the airport, but Kirsten, Saeed, and August know that the prophet is somewhere behind them. And yeah. so it's sort of like this very tense situation. They're trying to get to the airport. They're trying to get to safety, but they don't know where the prophet is. They end up hiding to hope, hoping that he will pass them by, but the dog sniffs them out. And Kirsten, like the other two are still hidden and Kirsten kind of like gives herself up. Yeah. She's kind of waiting to be killed. Yeah. To be executed by the prophet. And we get just a moment where the prophet says something from, from Station, Station 11. 11. And there's this weird moment where Kirsten says more about Station 11. They kind of quote it back and forth. And then... Shit goes down because the one kid in their group, in the prophet's group, shoots the prophet. Yeah. Because the kid is going through his own, his whole own thing going on. We kind of have it hinted at earlier. Yeah. And this gives August an opening to kill the other two guys. Mm -hmm. And Kirsten, like, survives the situation. Yeah. Um, But then the boy kills himself. Yeah, the boy who shot the prophet kills himself. And so it's kind of this really traumatic dramatic moment i think it's so interesting because it's dramatic and yet it also isn't yeah you know you expect this like big showdown between the prophet and the symphony yeah but it's really just kirsten and him on this road and he has this gun to her head and she thinks she's gonna die and then it's nothing that she does that saves herself it's just this boy who is suddenly doubting the mission and the theology that he's been fed. And is like, I don't think this is right anymore. And he ends up taking out the prophet. And Kirsten can't stop him from killing himself as well. And it's so sad, but it's so like, I almost expected that the fallout of this would be this way. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That like these cults would like kind of self-implode a little bit. Um, But like just that the prophet's reign of terror kind of ends in this uh unexpected way i think is interesting i also love the lack of payoff too with the fact that like the prophet is the son of arthur leander the actor who yeah. kirsten idolized of, uh, yeah idolized and adored and who also was familiar with station 11 a comic that only like a handful of copies exist and instead of some like deep discussion about it or like in the show where they like you know talk about it mm-hmm. and it's like you know There's just this hint of like Kirsten being like, did that really happen with him quoting Station Eleven? And she finds a actually she finds a page from it in his pocket. Yeah. Um, but like she never finds out who he is, how he got it. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of this like mysterious circumstance that like she as a character 
has no idea how it like all went down. Which is how the book is. It's just these characters that are circling each other and they have these connections with each other, but then they move on, right? And they have their own lives. And like, it's so true to like our own life where we intersect constantly with so many other people with rich interior lives, but we have no idea what our connections and our brief interactions, what chain reactions kind of happen out of them. And I think it's it's very beautiful. It's very sad, as well. Yeah. This is definitely a theme in um, some of her other books because I also read uh, The Glass Hotel and it's the same idea of all these characters and the unintended consequences of our interactions and connections with each other. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about the show again. Let's find out what happened to Jeevan because there are hints in the show that, you know, he, Jeevan and uh, Kirsten, after they left uh, Chicago and his brother Frank, They found a cabin somewhere or a house and they've kind of been like living, just, you know, surviving. Yeah. And it's hinted at that like Kirsten at some point, because, you know, we get all these little flash forwards uh, that he disappeared and that maybe wolves got him. Yeah. So we didn't know (laughs) what happened. But in this episode, we kind of find out a little bit more about Jeevan and Kirsten, her kind of becoming a little bit more self-sufficient. Yeah. Jeevan, uh, he has this little ham radio. I don't know if that's actually what it is. A little radio. And he's like kind of talking to some people. Yeah. He bizarrely (laughs) tells someone that that he's a a doctor. (laughs) And I'm like, why would you tell anyone this? And we never get an explanation for it later. No. Um, And this later leads to an interaction where a woman shows up and shoots him with a beanbag gun Thinking he's the doctor, even though, like, how did she find him? Why, Why would she, she shoot, shoot the doctor with a beanbag gun? <laughs> and, yeah, so, like, just weird. One of those weird situations where, like, this feels so contrived. Like, why would he ever say that? Yeah. And then uh, Jeevan and Kirsten get into a fight about the book. He throws it in the snow. And then he's like, okay, I'll go back for it. But it's night. And he goes back for it. And he gets mauled by a wolf. This was a very... uh Intense. It was very horrifying. The, like, the audio is graphic. Yeah, you don't see anything. You just hear him being attacked. And like, yeah. I thought for sure he was dead. And you finally hear a gunshot and the wolf leave. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's been, his foot and his arm have been like badly mauled and damaged. He's crawling through the snow to try to get back to Kirsten when the woman who shot him with the beanbag gun finds him, kidnaps him. Yeah, puts him on her bike and takes him to a maternity ward in a department store. <laughs> And the whole idea is that he said he was a doctor on the radio, so they literally Shanghai him because they're like, there's so many pregnant women here. There's one doctor who's like, I need help. And then when they find out that he's not a doctor, they're like, well, too late. We still need help. You have to deliver babies with me. Because, like, somehow all the women are going to go into... Uh, labor at like the same time the doctor th- like they're the all stars synced. have aligned yeah they're all <laughs> synced up and they're gonna have their babies on the winter solstice and so she needs Jeevan's help and uh you know this kind of goes back to like I think Jeevan being an aimless character and mm-hmm. I like the idea of him being forced into this situation where he kind of has to like rise up to the occasion and find his calling but then again he's been doing that with Kirsten this whole time yeah like him finding a purpose in helping her that I don't think is ever really explored adequately. Like, it's suddenly acting like this is his moment. And I'm yeah. like, 
He's been in the moment. Yeah, he decided to take care of her when he didn't have to. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I do kind of feel like this is a weird mixed message in the show. Yeah. There's a connection, though, with one of the women and Tyler, the prophet, where I'm like, were they friends? Was that her lover? And is the child his child? Because he's pretty young. But the baby ends up being Alex, who's the Alex of the troop. I don't know. It's very confusing. Which it's I not, didn't even notice. It's not explained. Yeah, just bizarre. Uh, there is a good scene. The music is in this show is something we haven't talked about, but the music is very good. I mm-hmm. love the music throughout this montage of him trying to run around and help these women Deliver in labor, babies. delivering yeah. babies. Uh, it is my nightmare of a situation because something about pregnant women delivering babies in like, <laughs> stressful situations. Yeah. I'm just like, and this is like that times 20. We get a a very interesting vaginal shot here. (laughs) Full on. No. I mean, it's CGI, obviously. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, yeah, it's there. Um, But, you know, Jeevan does kind of do well and decides he ends up like kind of uh, being with one of the women, like yeah. marrying her later. Mm-hmm. And eventually we get a flash forward where he has become kind of a doctor, like a local community doctor. Yeah, and that he is has helping kids people. now yeah. with that woman. And he does try to go back for Kirsten, but when he does, she's already left the cabin, and so he doesn't know how to find her. Yeah. Let's go to the airport in the show where everybody's <sighs> reuniting And Kirsten and Tyler arrive. The symphony's there. Sarah, the conductor, has had a heart attack, and now she's, you know, hooked up to machines. And Kirsten is like, listen, we have to go. They're holding you hostage. But the symphony is like, what are you talking about? Like, it's really nice here. We have electricity now. Like, it's really great. Why are you being so hostile? For some reason, she's taken the prophet at his word that, like, this is a bad place and that they're prisoners. Yeah. Well, there's this fake out where Clark is like, Oh, we, 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 I'm not going to let them perform. I've changed my mind. Yeah. But we can't let them go. They're prisoners. They're prisoners. So it seems like she's right. And then she's not because then they end up changing their mind. Yeah. I just like, I don't know what I'm supposed to think about any of this. No, I don't either. And then Tyler is being weird and he goes to the, the, the monument that they've created for this plane and he sets the monument on fire. And even though it's like a steel monument, it burns to like a crisp. Yeah. Just he, from some alcohol. Then he blows up the museum. With his with his Game, game Boy. <laughs> if you have not watched the show, this probably sounds like insanity. And it is. It is. Like, I don't know. We could break it down in more detail. But honestly, so much of it is just like. Random. Yeah. Like, why did he blow up? The museum, like, I get he has an issue with, like, the past, and he thinks the past should be forgotten. Yeah. But also, this is supposed to be a symbol, the the, the beacon being lit to, for like... the undersea kids? Yeah, for his child army <laughs> that he has reared for, like, decades now, and... But they end up not doing anything? No, they show up, but they don't do anything. And I can't figure out why Kirsten cares about him at all, what his motivations are. Yeah. What is Clark doing? Is he a villain or is he just old? And annoying. And annoying. <laughs> uh, like Elizabeth is trying to reconnect with her son. I, I don't know. It's just so haphazard. Kirsten decides that she's the director now of this symphony. And so they're going to do a play. They're going to do Hamlet. And she's like, listen, Tyler, you're going to be Hamlet. 
Your mom is going to be Gertrude, the mom of Hamlet, and Clark is going to be Claudius, the kind of like conniving, you know, usurper role. And you're going to get out all your issues in this play experience. Um, And it is kind of interesting, this dynamic, but I don't know what really gets resolved here because Hamlet is all about Hamlet trying to grieve for his father, right? And everyone else is moving on, but he can't let it go. Yeah. Uh, but we've never really had any indication that Tyler is grieving for Arthur in any way because he was sort of an absent father. Uh, so to have this sort of be an analogy for his character didn't quite sit right. Yeah, they're like, Tyler, your issue isn't that you watched the man get shot in the head right in front of your own eyes when you tried to save his life. Your issue is with your dad. Yeah. You just are upset with your dad, and if you just perform Hamlet... You'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And also, I just have to point out the absurdity that, like, they decide the day of that, like, oh, <laughs> you're Hamlet, you're Gertrude, you're Claudius. And, like, everyone just learns their fucking lines. And this is Shakespearean language. Yes. Like, it's not easy to learn. Adina, when I took a Shakespeare class, <laughs> I was called on to read aloud <laughs> from the book. I had the book in front of me, and I could barely put two sentences together without, like, stammering or, like... And you were, like, sweating. Yes, and I was, like, sweating profusely, <laughs> and I'm, like, the idea that these people could just, like, read over this once and be like, alright, I got it. Don't even worry about it. Yeah, Kirsten previously gave up her knives to Alex, and then Alex gives the knife to Tyler, and then there's a scene where Tyler pulls the knife on Clark during the play, but then doesn't kill Clark in, I guess, a moment of catharsis. Because was Clark really his, like, main enemy? I don't know. Also, Kirsten giving up her knives is, like, clearly supposed to be symbolic of her, like, letting her guard down and, like, being more open. But I'm like, she just got attacked by four men just last episode and had to kill them. Like, I don't think... Now is not the time to give up your knives. Yeah, keep your knives. Like, that's fine. Yeah. It seems kind of silly in in hindsight. Yeah. Should we just mention the the costumes in the show, though, and how interesting they are? Oh, my God. This is really, honestly, one of the highlights of the show was the costume work. Yeah. Uh, For their performances, they have these, like, really unique, funky costumes that are, like, one is made of just, like, many sleeves of, like, winter coats. Yes. Or one that Kirsten wears at the golf course is made of, like, golf uh, gloves. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I'm trying to think of others. When Kirsten does her childhood performance. Yeah. Like, the cardboard astronaut costumes are great. Mm -hmm. I love them so much. Yeah, it really does feel like scavenged outfits, which I like. But, like, super creative. Like, they're not even trying to, like, imitate... No. Like, period-accurate costumes or anything. They're just like, go fucking wild. Just do your own thing. Yeah, just do whatever you want. (laughs) There's another part in the show, too, that's sort of weird, where we flash back to Miranda, and it turns out that she's the reason that the quarantined plane does not deboard and infect everybody else in the airport she calls the pilot and ends up convincing him to lock the doors and let everyone die which is interesting for her but i don't really know if this is necessary and in fact in the book there's no explanation for it and the the quarantine line just stays quarantined and people die yeah i mean it's not hard to imagine that someone would make this decision yeah and for miranda i think they just wanted her to have some agency kind of at the end of the story but like it also feels weird like how would she have done this like getting his phone number and and doing this thing that she feels she has to do for some reason to save arthur's kid Yeah. yeah it feels really like 
it's a stretch. Yeah. There's also a part where one of the undersea girls shows up after the play and has a bomb. And Kirsten's like, hey, why don't we come over here and I'll, I'll show you the Station Eleven <laughs> hey, comic. Kiddo. And maybe we can get rid of this bomb. Yeah. And somehow reading the comic to the girl convinces her that, like, it's not true, which I don't know why that would convince her. Yeah. Like, wouldn't that probably just convince her more like hey here's physical evidence like this is like your bible basically yeah Yeah. um but like she she convinces her not to do this and steals the book though but then she oh yeah she steals it and then gives it to um tyler tyler at the very end of the story Mm -hmm. yeah at the very end of the show uh oh well and then we get a moment where jeevan gets called as a doctor to come see sarah yeah who had a heart attack and she dies. She dies. <laughs> but Jeevan's at the airport, which leads Kirsten and Jeevan to reunite. Finally together. And it's this very beautiful moment between the two of them. Um, but it's really interesting because things just kind of like peter out after that. Yeah. Um, Tyler and Elizabeth reunite and kind of reconcile. And Elizabeth is like, I'm going to leave with Tyler. Alex decides to leave. She does not explain why. No. We don't understand why she's going. Uh, So Tyler, Elizabeth, his mom, and Alex, and then the whole group of kids just fuck off. 500 children. Yeah. Who were just crouched in the weeds, I guess. (laughs) Doing nothing. Yeah. Like, what was their... they, They were told to show up when the beacon was lit. Yeah. Because Station Eleven would be landing. But what does that mean? Yeah. What were the kids actually going to do? How did... Were they going to set off the bombs? Like, what was going to happen? How many bombs did they have? How did Tyler call them off? Like, there's so many... It's another one of those moments where something is set up that's, like, kind of interesting. Yeah. And then the show is just like, but I'm... But I mean, like, don't actually think about it. Just, she'll she'll (laughs) talk down one kid, and that'll be enough. Yeah. But, like, the interesting thing about the show is that at the end... I mean, you have Elizabeth, you have Tyler, you have Clark, you have Jeevan, you have Kirsten. You have kind of like all of the main characters reuniting. Yeah, at the airport. At the airport. Which is so different than the book where the characters, like you get uh, Elizabeth and, or I'm sorry, you get uh, Kirsten and Clark. Yeah, coming together. Meeting at the airport in the book. But that's like it. Mm Mm-hmm. And Jeevan is, like, in fucking Virginia yeah. in the book being a doctor. Like, he pursued the same thing in the book, which I found to be interesting. Because yeah. he knew he wanted to be a medical person of some kind. Uh, but, like, the book feels more like, hey, Arthur was kind of the focal point of all these people. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of just explode outward. Into the world. Yeah. And, yeah. like, bounce off other people and kind of just, like, continue this chain reaction. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be, like, very interesting. Yeah. This idea that, like, they don't reunite, you know, like... uh, There's no sense in the world, right? No, exactly. There's no order. It's chaos. But it's beautiful. Whereas the show takes more of the idea of, like, well, everything happens for a reason. Like, everyone was destined to To come come back back. to the airport. (laughs) And something about that feels like it's kind of, like... Not nearly as interesting yeah. to me. Yeah. Whereas I, I, I think the book's approach with like, that's the, life. Yes, that's life. That's just the chaos of the universe. Mm-hmm. But it's still beautiful in its own way. Yeah, definitely. Know? And I love how the book ends 
because we get Arthur's perspective at the end. And we know this is the day that he's going to die. And it's mentioned throughout the last chapter about him not feeling well that day, kind of going about preparing for his performance that night as King Lear. And we get his internal thoughts and being like, I want to move to be closer to my son. I want to be a better father. I want to like leave this life behind, all this wealth, all these possessions, everything that I've done so far, and I want to start over. And it's just, it's so sad because we know that he never gets a chance to. Yeah. But it's also like so realistic in that way that like every time somebody dies, there's like something unfinished, right? Yeah. People's lives aren't perfectly wrapped up. Yeah. And it can end at any moment. And and I love how that's like a micro example of the macro story of like this yeah, the, apoc- pandemic. the pandemic like how everything can just suddenly grind to a halt and end yeah um and things aren't always going to be fulfilled or mm-hmm. you know be neatly wrapped up like i kind of love in the book that miranda is just in malaysia yeah and dies of the flu and it's like sad and like the show gives her this final moment of doing something yeah But she doesn't need it. No, I don't think she does. You know, and she made art that impacted people. Yeah. In so many ways that she'll never know, you know. And Arthur, even though he was a shitty father, ended up impacting Kirsten in Mm -hmm. a way that he'll never understand. And like Tyler, you know, took things from his life and his experiences that ended up hurting a lot of people. But like there's so much positive that can happen, too. Yeah. It's just this really beautiful and unique way of telling a story in the book of that easily could feel cynical of like, oh, these people, they never met each other again. And Mm -hmm. like, you know, it could feel like a downer, but it's written with such sincerity and beauty that like is very touching. I feel like uh, Emily St. John Mandel really like understands humanity and understands the connections between people and finds them sad and beautiful at the same time. And like, that's what I love about this book. It's a book about pan- the pandemic, but it's so positive and it's so emotional and touching in really like interesting ways. And the plot doesn't happen the way that you would expect. It's such a unique book and I really haven't read anything like it. Yeah, I, it's... um. It's really remarkable. Yeah. And so which this one seems do you like, like better? a na- <laughs> this seems like a natural transition to discuss which one we think is better. And if you couldn't tell, I think it's a resounding book from both of us. And I mean, I have to say, like, we are both a little bit biased from the start because we loved the book so much. Sure. Yeah. But I really did like a lot of things about this show. I think the decision to pair Kirsten and Jeevan was the best choice that the show made. I totally agree. I loved all the scenes with the two of them. I love that backstory. I love them being together and the dynamic that they had. I thought that was genius. But it almost feels like something's missing in the book. Yeah. Because I kept being having to be reminded that like, oh yeah, Kirsten was with her brother in the early years and Jeevan was just like with his brother. And I'm like... Boy, that pairing really is great mm-hmm. in in the show. Yeah, but I think almost every other decision felt bizarre and like not really not really given the depth that it needed to. The stuff with Alex, the stuff with the prophet, stuff with Clark even. Like I just wish that they had really explored it more and given us more insight into their characters because Every time a character did something in this show, I never understood why they did it. No, their characters are so erratic and, like, hard to understand and pin down. Like, 
Kirsten's decisions and like why she does what she does. Clark, yeah. who flip flops from feeling like a sympathetic character to being like a piece of shit or like evil yeah. at points, like is so all over the place. Yeah. Because uh, I mean, characters can make choices that aren't like logical. Yeah. As long as they're motivated by something like that you yeah. understand, like if they're angry, if they're sad, if they want revenge, mm-hmm. like, you know, it doesn't have to be a smart decision, but you have to understand it. Yeah. And this show is just full of so many things that stopped me from fully enjoying it because I could just never figure out why anyone was doing anything that they were doing. Yeah, I mean, you can sell anything, any decision, if you just give enough time mm-hmm. and show enough insight into the character as to why they do it, you know? But the the show just didn't do that for me. There was a lot of vibes in this show that, like, felt like they were supposed to be meaningful or impactful, but, like, none of the substance behind them. Like, if we got a scene where Tyler talked about that man being shot in front yeah. of him... Or, like, the other characters discussing it. Or, Mm -hmm. like, at least more overt symbolism for how he was feeling. Yeah. Things like that could have worked much better. But ultimately, like, I I really think this show was a big miss for me. Yeah, which is surprising because I've read a lot of um, praise for it. And I do think it's a well-made and well-acted, and I do like a lot of these episodes on their own, but as a whole, I don't really think it's a cohesive story, and I didn't really love the characters, besides maybe Jeevan. I really like Jeevan. Jeevan was great. I kind of wonder if, like, it's so positively reviewed because it's people's first exposure to this story. Yeah. Like, I know the book was popular, but I'm sure a lot of people are experiencing this story for the first time in the show, which is... It is such a unique story. It's like art in the face of the end of the world. Yeah. And that's such an interesting concept. And I think a lot of people were really vibing with that a Mm -hmm. lot. Um, But I think when you look at like the story and narrative and structure and for me anyway, it just kind of all falls apart. Yeah. So read the book if you haven't. It's excellent. And if you're like, it's too heavy, I can't read it. I think you'd be surprised by the tone of the story and how um, uplifting it is. For sure, yeah. I mean, there's it, it doesn't hold its punches in a way with, like, some of the shit going on and people being like, wow, yeah. Yeah. Most Mostly everyone's dead right now. But mm-hmm. ultimately, like, by the end, I felt so positive about it all yeah. and hopeful just about humanity in general mm-hmm. that uh, I really think it's, it's a worthwhile read, especially now. All right. So it's the book from both of us. It is. Let's do a quick lightning round. Yeah. So first up for Lightning Round, I read uh, Mandel's book after this called uh, The Glass Hotel, and Leon and Miranda are in it. What? Really? Yeah. So they they appear in it as minor characters, and the main character of the story, whose name is Vincent, uh, thinks one time when she's walking down the street of like alternate universes, (laughs) and she imagines different scenarios, and she's like, what if that flew in Georgia hadn't been so swiftly contained. Oh my God. So it's sort of like the Glass Hotel is an alternate universe of Station Eleven where the flu does not break out. Wow. And uh, Leon doesn't do well in this scenario. Like it's there's like a Ponzi scheme going on and he actually like loses his whole like <laughs> oh my God. company and money and all this stuff. But Leon and Miranda do appear kind of as side characters in this story. That's so interesting. Isn't that cool? And like in Station Eleven, August talks about alternate universes as well. Yeah. Kind of imagining different worlds where the pandemic didn't happen. Uh, that's great. <laughs> Something I wanted to mention is that something I love about books 
is that in a book like this, she can talk so much about like they made camp in the abandoned Walmart. Yeah. You know what I mean? They ate um some uh, Slim Jims that they found in a convenience store. <laughs> uh, the Wendy's had been converted into homes. Yeah. Like, they can mention all these specific brands and things that like we're so familiar with like today. We can just picture it. That we can picture. And there's something that's like so unique or interesting about that that like movies can't do because Walmart's like, no, I don't want you to show a Walmart as like a post-apocalyptic. <laughs> it's always like a generic supermarket or yeah. a generic convenience store or just generic food. But something about like reading these, reading about these specific locations is just so interesting and unique to books. Yeah. And I love it. I agree. Next for lightning round, I just have to say in the show, I think her name is Daria in the book. I don't know what her name is in the show, but it's the woman that Jeevan kind of meets and falls in love with when he's at the maternity ward area. And she gives birth, and she's the one who has the motorcycle or whatever vehicle that took him originally to this place. And so she's like, I'll take you back to see if Kirsten's still there. But she does so the day after she gives birth, Ian. Yep. This woman who just gave birth in a society with no doctors or hospitals or drugs or anesthesia or anything, wraps up her newborn infant, mm-hmm. takes it out into freezing temperatures, gets her her body onto a <laughs> motorcycle and drives Jeevan. And I'm like, I call bullshit. Also, you have to consider the fact that she got knocked unconscious while she was nine months pregnant earlier in the episode. And was fine. And was fine. And additionally, she moved Jeevan's, like... Prone body. His entire weight uh, while she was nine months pregnant to, like, get him to... Yeah. I know. I'm like, do you know what it's like to be pregnant? (laughs) Or to have a baby, because that's not how it works. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of things you have to... um question with that reveal definitely uh the last thing i wanted to mention is i really love in well real briefly too the old age makeup in the show (sighs) kind of distracting yeah because everyone just kind of has the same like age spots age spots and mop of like gray (laughs) hair like everyone just grows their hair out really gray and long in the future you know no one cuts it um but on top of that i love in the book Clark, you know, before he had his corporate job, was kind of this, like, punk kind of guy who, like, shaved half his head and, like, dyed his hair pink. And, Mm -hmm. you know, then he got his corporate job and cleaned up. But in in this you know, uh, post-pandemic society. He just re-embraces his punk aesthetic. <laughs> he shaves half his head. He has, like... Four earrings. Four earrings in his ear and, like, then shaves his entire head. And, like... Yeah. I love this vibe for him. I do, I love too. him just being an old punk. Yes, he's a queer icon. <laughs> yes, he's great. <laughs> That's our lightning round. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please let us know what you thought of this series. Um, Ian and I really felt like we were kind of... Some of the only people saying that they didn't like it, at least from what you're reading on the internet. So I'd be interested to find out if you like the show, if you'd read the book, what you thought. Um, And just want to plug our Patreon. Um, If you become a patron, you have a priority request for our episodes. We do a lot of patron requested episodes and we also have bonus episodes. Yes, we have 40 now, 40 bonus episodes. You get access to all of those. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you could leave us a positive Apple Podcasts rating, if you're listening on that platform, that is hugely helpful to us. Yeah. Find us on Instagram, find us on Twitter, find us on Facebook. We're all over the place. Yeah. And 
Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Stay safe out there in this pandemic world. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.